great souls, greetings. Because we have a couple of new people tonight, new to Ananda, new to this course, I'm going to just uh, do a little bit of bringing us up to date, which I hope the rest of you won't find too boring. I hope not. This is the second segment of what will probably take us another year, I presume, maybe a little longer, to go through all 26 lessons of Swami Kriyananda's course, which is called variously material success through yoga principles, success and happiness through yoga principles, in which I arbitrarily recalled manifesting through the power of yoga. Um, This course was written by the founder of Ananda um, in, uh, he wrote it about 2003, I think, after moving to India and perceiving in the circumstances there that the, um, the principles of dharma of right action and ethical behavior were being severely assaulted by the forces of materialism and particularly coming to a clash in that culture. So he wrote this from an Indian pers- from the perspective of being in India, which only comes out in the course every once in a while because he makes assumptions about words and characters and he'll make references to you know aspects of Shiva or references to the epics as if we all know those things. But other than that, what he's written is of universal value because the entire question of the integration between spiritual aspiration and material aspiration is just as active in the West as it is in the East. In the East, this incredible dramatic story, especially India, is really being acted out right now. But in the West, it's kind of like we're approaching the same point from the other side which is that we've gone way, way, way up on this level of material success and living at this plateau of luxury beyond what we even... We don't even think of it as luxury. That's how far luxurious has gotten. We don't even know that this is luxury. We just think this is life. Um, That we've begun to recognize the um, intense dissatisfaction that can set in once you have everything you think you want because of the realization that even when you're sitting there, um, there's something that the soul desires that isn't necessarily fulfilled outwardly. Um, In fact, that's why on a spiritual path like Ananda, in which self-realization is the goal and the shedding of a lot of this egoic um, identification, we tend not to attract people who are struggling economically. I don't mean privileged people who are struggling economically, which is a lot of us these days. But I mean people who have never had much, the cultural groups that have never had much and are striving just to get a little piece of what's happening. Because um, we never, uh, how does Swamiji puts it this way, we learn a great deal from being disappointed, but we never really learn until our desires are fulfilled. Because only after our desire is fulfilled can we genuinely tell how happy this is going to make me. It's very easy for someone who's sitting there with all of what you want to tell you, oh, you don't really want to struggle for this, happiness lies somewhere else, and the natural thought is, well, it's easy for you to talk. But only when we really have it ourselves, have drunk that particular cup of fulfillment to the, to the bottom, can we say, well, that was wonderful, but I need more. And that's really how spiritual progress is made, is from putting out the energy to follow whatever will of the wisp desires are in front of us to achieve that goal and then to say, is there more? And part of the whole premise of this course, which is one of the the lessons we're dealing with tonight, 
is that the effort, that the, the desires and the, the, uh, the force that we feel to fulfill those desires is actually God-implanted. Because the effort to fulfill our desires requires a certain discipline and concentration of our energy. And the techniques for fulfilling any desire are ultimately the, de- the techniques for, feel- for fulfilling our divine desires. Because until we have mastery over ourselves, we really have nothing. And when we really want something sufficiently, we tend to discipline ourselves in order to achieve it. I mean, an immature desire just sits around and wishes it could have it. That's Yogananda makes the distinction between a wish and a desire. A wish is just sort of sitting here hoping it'll happen. (laughs) You know, a desire is when you really want it and then when we put willpower behind that desire. So if we're just wishing things will happen, we tend not to learn anything. But when we really desire it strongly enough to put willpower behind it, we always learn something. Um, How much we learn is really dependent on a whole lot of factors, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, We started a few months ago working through these 26 lessons. My um, wish was to go as slowly as necessary because these lessons are really meaty. Um, If you haven't read the lessons that we're working with, you can get a password and go onto the internet and print them out. Um, And also, if you have a desire to catch up to where we are, all the previous classes are posted on our website, and you can just download MP3s of them at no charge and just learn. But for those of us who are continuing on this, either those of you who pick this up later off the internet or are sitting in the room in front of me, we are now at Lesson 7 which is called Balancing Work and Meditation, which really couldn't be more important. What this lesson is really about is really how um, evolution is, what evolution is and how do we get there. It's, uh, the introduction that I was giving to this whole course is, was inspired to a certain extent by what I've just read in this lesson. Because what Swamiji is trying to talk to us about here is how the inner and the outer work together. That's, you know, this is represented by work and the, the concept of meditation and talking about how the two have to come together. And he makes two important points overall in this lesson. One of them is that all success is dependent on attunement with the superconscious. And therefore, anything that puts us more in tune with the superconscious is a technique of success. And we'll deal with that in a moment. And then the other point he makes is that all of life is a progression from lesser to greater awareness. And that greater awareness is defined by greater inner awareness. And therefore, merely to make a great deal happen in, you know, in our external life, without a corresponding expansion of inner awareness, um, may pass the time, even entertainingly, but there'll be no lasting progress in that. And that's because the nature of life is dual, which are the things that we'll we'll talk about now. So as we've progressed on this um, course from the beginning, um, we've been trying to build a conception of the world in which we can move through it with an understanding that will cause us not merely from habit or from rote memorization to know how to make the right decisions, 
but will actually enable us to be able to really understand from the inside out why a certain course of behavior or why certain action is the right action. I mean, in uh, Kali Yuga, which is the age on this planet which is now ended, Kali Yuga is the age of matter, which is to say the age of form, in which there was uh, uh, people believed that the way things looked was the way things are. And so the result of that was that form held supreme reality. What's happened to us now is that people are, are much more interested in the, the consciousness and the vibration and the energy of things. Um, as a very good example, you know, a hundred years ago, or even in my parents' generation, divorce was just, just unheard of. It wasn't that people were happy in their marriages, but the form of marriage was supreme, and you just didn't break up your marriage. You could be absolutely miserable in it, making no spiritual progress, doing no good for anyone, but the form was so important, people wouldn't break the form. And then, you know, 50 years ago or so, the, 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 reality, the people began to think more in terms of what the reality of it was, and not just the form. This was both the good news and the bad news. The good news was that people were trying to come to a deeper, more sincere level <clears throat> based on their actual experience. The bad news is that forms began to crack left and right. And the um, comforting power of some kind of external stability, well, it's just gone, just forget it. I was very interested in my own family's life. There was, in our family, and we were just a good, you know, an ordinary, stable family. I don't know if all marriages were happy, but all marriages were intact. And then my brother got divorced, and when my brother got divorced, my uncle got divorced. It was was just very interesting. It was sort of like once the thought form entered the family, (laughs) You know, it was like, it was possible for everyone in the family to have that thought. It, it, was, it happened, you know, in such quick succession, and I really know that there was a relationship. It was like, oh, I could change my circumstances. I don't have to stay like this. Okay, so now, um, let me just think for just a minute where I was going with that. <clears throat> I had a different thought, but I lost it, so I'm just going to have to leave that one just sitting there because I don't know where I was going with it. Um, So now what uh, Swamiji is trying to talk to us about, let me me pull this out in front of me. He he makes a very interesting picture here for us of... um, he, he's trying to explain... In, oh, I know what I was starting to say. I was starting to say that what we're trying to develop is a world view. That it isn't sufficient now for people to just be told, you should be honest. If you cheat your neighbor, you'll go to hell. Or something like that. You know, God will see you and he'll punish you. It, it used to be that people were highly motivated by dogmas, by guilt. I often joke, you know, when people are not in our sangha or in our community doing what I think they ought to do that the old system of guilt was really very helpful to people who had responsibility because they could just exercise it. And the loss of that has been depressing for people in positions like mine. Of course, I'm only joking, but it's just a fact. You know, people nowadays will do what they feel inspired to do, often to their tremendous detriment. But nonetheless, again, the good news of that is is that we're making our own experience the actual criteria. So what Swamiji is wanting us to capture in this. So, so up till now in this worldview that we've been trying to build for material success, 
We started out, and I'm just reminding us because we've been separated for a while, we started out with the absolute inexorability of the law of karma that cause and effect applies in human life. And we spent really quite a long time because when we try to get away with something, we, some part of us believes that we'll be able to get away with it, won't, don't we? Because if we didn't think we could get away with it, we wouldn't try it. If we just knew immediately that this is going to be a disaster, we would rarely try it. We might anyway. But if we understand that every action that I put out bears the consequences of that action, then that really, on the deepest fundamental level, profoundly affects the, the choices we make. Because we do, we try to cut corners, we try to do wrong things, we try to escape the consequences of our behavior if we believe that we can. And when we know that we can't, I, I've shared with you, but it's a really interesting thought. Um, I read about uh, Stephen Levine, one of his uh, seminars that he gave for dying people. And he had people with terminal illnesses there, and he was helping them to either to recover or to accept their death, whichever was going to happen to them. And he had people, the first thing he had people do was make a list of everything that they were not going to, that they were going to miss out on if their illness took them and they died essentially in their own minds prematurely. You know, one of my women friends who died a few years ago, her daughter had only just graduated from high school when she was diagnosed. She realized she would never, she would never be at her daughter's wedding. You know, she would never go shopping for her daughter's wedding dress. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you write down. I'll never hold my grandchild. I'll never see the bar mitzvah of my grandson. You know, it's, a, it's the list that everybody weeps over. So they did that whole list, and there was a tremendous amount of emotion. He said, now make the other list. And the other list is when you write down all the things that you're going to get to avoid because you're going to die early. You're not going to have to deal with them. You know, such as the $23,000 that you owe on your credit card. You're just never going to have to deal with that. Isn't that just a marvelous thing? You know, and you're never going to have to resolve this sort of dead marriage that you're in now. And whatever it might be, you're never going to have to face the problem of growing old because you're not going to grow old. Everything you get to avoid. Now, then he says, you think that what you're going to do is get used to the ones that you're going to miss, but in fact, all the energy was on the things you get to avoid. Because it's the very thought in your mind that somehow there's a way to escape the inevitable results of your own action that is really what binds us. And I found it myself when I read that. It was a very interesting exercise. And I was pleased to note, and I don't want to make too strong a point of this, but I was very pleased to note that I just really could put very little on my avoid list, partly because the thought of reincarnation is so profound to me. It was like, what point would it be to write it on this list? It's just going to show up on the next list. It just doesn't make any difference. And part of it was just simply that. But the other part was, after many decades of very disciplined, attentive commitment to this understanding of life, it's just become deeply inculcated in me that what you do has consequences. And the other side of that is the, the, the opinion where there is dharma, which where there is right action, there will always be victory. Maybe not in the short term, but sooner or later. In other words, the only route to victory is through right action, because everything else sooner or later will simply rebound on you. Now, that was a very important principle that we worked with. We also have worked with the principle of concentrating energy, the necessity for concentration, and very profoundly that the, the necessity 
to be able to clearly understand and visualize where you're trying to go and to be as committed to every step along the way as you are to the wonderfulness of getting there. And I think of all the things that we've talked about, I think that perhaps is one of the most important keys because people are really happy to visualize some result, but, but often very vague and rather lazy in visualizing all the steps that are required to get there. And so we think, in fact, sometimes people teach us, all we have to do is visualize the result. But what you have to really visualize is standing here and you have to visualize six inches. And you have to see those six inches so vividly that you just step into them with 100% of your energy because that's what creates the magnetism to take you there. And it's the sort of always, you know, wanting to be different but not wanting to change. Wanting to be successful but not wanting to train. Whatever it might be. Well, those are just some of them. But now what we're up to and Swamiji is talking about, is basically, I used to give a class with this title. It was called How the World Works and Why. And so all we're talking about right now is evolution. <laughs> and these, these thoughts seem, you know, a little bit distant from the idea of, but I need a job and how am I going to get one? I want a promotion and how am I going to persuade my boss? But what we're actually trying to understand is the fabric of how things work. And we're trying to dismantle in our mind wrong thinking so we can be really in tune with right thinking. So Swamiji starts first with just, just um, let, me, let me think. It's so interesting the way he phrases it. Um, he talks about how the biologist has no, the, the, the general state of science today is they can see that everything around us is changing. But because they're not oriented from the point of view of consciousness or from inner consciousness out from there, it's very difficult to see what the actual direction of the world around us is. And before that direction was held by dogma, I was talking about the churches, the church declared, you know, you're going to heaven or you're going to hell, you believe in Jesus Christ or you're damned, because you believe in Jesus Christ you need to go out and be a missionary, or if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you know, just whatever it is. But they were very fixed ideas but because all those fixed ideas have begun to disintegrate on us, and because the principles of the, sci- the quote, scientific method, which is ex- extremely based on looking at the external world and trying to weigh and measure it, and then from that understand what's going on. Swami Kriyananda, um, just recently when I was with him, um, I wrote this in a letter to some of you, but we were walking, we were... Uh, just on a holiday in South India, and we were walking through the resort hotel where we were staying, and there were a lot of people around us, and it's it's an international resort, so there were people from all different countries, and everybody's carrying with them, you know, their cultural, their national, their religious orientation, so it was a, a marvelous feast of different faces, different ages, different countries, different ways of being, and Swamiji was very much enjoying, you know, just looking at the show. And I, I've, I've grown to enjoy looking at the show too. And he remarked, as he's remarked before, you know, all of us have one nose, two eyes, two ears, a mouth. And yet the extraordinary variety that's been created out of the same building blocks. And, and how clearly, if you're sensitive, you can read consciousness from looking at form. So he, he pointed out, he said, there's only one of two explanations. Either the consciousness is created by the form, you know, because you have that body, you have that consciousness, 
or the form is created by the consciousness. The consciousness comes first, and then the form is a manifestation of it. And he says it, it seems self-evident, you know, to some of us, that the consciousness creates form. He said the, the scientists are getting more and more subtle in their understanding, but they, and they're beginning to sort of see somehow that it's, it is consciousness that's creating form, but they can't quite figure it out. And then Swami made the interesting comment. He said, and they'll never figure it out because their method is wrong. They'll never look from the outside and then understand that. You have to look first from the inside, which is why the more science works, the more it looks like the Vedas, because the self-realized masters understood consciousness from the inside out, and then they were able to declare what was going on on the planet. Now, Swami writes a lot, very interesting in this, in this particular lesson. He says repeatedly, these lessons are really not for everyone. In fact, many people won't understand these lessons at all. In fact, most people won't understand these lessons because it takes a certain amount, and he also talks about that in here, which we'll talk about, it takes a certain amount of life experience, repeated life experience, and you have to put reincarnation in this or it doesn't work, repeated life experience before it just begins to occur to you what's going on. You know, my comments, you know, that I, I remember when I was 18 years old and I went to, away to college, I made the determination, which I don't know if it's still true, that the most unhappy people in the world were college freshman women. I guess that's just because the dorm I lived on, because they were so um, scared and self-preoccupied and self-concerned. And, and um, this one woman on her floor, she was hopelessly in love with a man who didn't want her. And I know that you can't always control the feelings of the heart. I'm not that stupid. But it seemed really obvious to me that she wanted him. He didn't want her. As long as she kept wanting him, she was going to be miserable. So we should at least work toward getting over this attachment. Don't you think that's obvious? You know, it's like, come on. But the uh, commitment on her part toward the attachment and toward the the reluctance to consider her inner reality in relation to her suffering was insurmountable. It's just nothing could be done. You know, she was just going to have to go through all of the cycles that you have to go through until the misery was greater than the fear of a new thought. You know, we just all prefer to sit where we are until where we are becomes so terrible that we will actually consider change. You know, that's the dynamic point uh, that we all reach. So um, Swamiji is talking in here about just the evolution, what's really going on in this world, which isn't, as the biologists try to say, you know, that we evolve by creating more and more species. You know, we just see, as he puts it, endless diversity as the whole point of creation. I mean, it's really hard to figure out how endless diversity is really a point. I mean, even just when some of our friends visited us from Italy a number of years ago, when Italy was a little less um, developed even than it is now, you know, the whole world is becoming so much alike, especially, I mean, I've only been traveling for, you know, 25 or 30 years in my life. I didn't start out as a child. I was in my 30s before I ever left this country. Um, But just in the short, relatively short period of time that I've left America, I've just really seen how cultures are amalgamating. You know, in, in any country like India, it's really dramatic. But even in Italy, it's very dramatic. And 
sort of before that really began to happen, some friends of ours from Italy were here, and we went to Long's Drugstore. Long's doesn't even exist anymore. In fact, actually, we've also taken our Indian friends to Long's Drugstore, and they were, they were just both amused and amazed by the endless ingenuity and diversity of products in America, especially when it was Long's and lots of different products were allowed. Now everything is the same company, you know, the sort of sameness is coming in. But just sheer diversity. You know, what I, what I used to call when I was younger, remarkable single-function items. You know, one item that's just designed to close a certain kind of wine bottle with a certain kind of top on it. And, you know, it's absolutely useless for anything else except to deal with that particular wine bottle in that particular way. When I was in my late teens, I used to have a strong aversion to what I called single-function items because it was just a way of spending more money. You know, use dual-function items, and then, you know, you don't need a popcorn maker, you just need a pot. You don't need a rice cooker, you need, just need a saucepan. I've modified a lot since then, but still you think about it. And, and in America especially, they just proliferate and proliferate. You know, I have one toothbrush that's just curved in such a way so that your thumb fits in this certain way. You know, and you go, you go there and there's 15, 25, 30 different kinds of toothbrushes. And some of them are the same as the others, but some of them are different. You know, is this progress? You know, it's certainly creative. And it's certainly superior. We, we were in um, Budapest, Um, when communism was shifting but hadn't really given up. And I really saw the opposite there. We had traveled on the train from Vienna and had left. It was winter. It was November. And the weather had been bad. We'd been in Germany and Austria, and the weather had been bad, so we bought an umbrella. We bought a German umbrella. Germans know how to make umbrellas, you know. Had a sturdy handle, had a long handle. It was very big. It was extremely well made, you know. The two of us could walk under that German umbrella and just be absolutely dry no matter how much it was raining. But we were coming on the train, so we left our German umbrella in Vienna, which was really dumb because it was pouring rain in Budapest. Budapest was still under the communist regime, One of the factors of communism is that they try to squelch individuality. You know, the idea is that we all become unified, but we all become unified in the lowest common denominator and the creativity, which is the heart and soul of of the person, is killed. So, it happened to be Christmas. Every store had the same really hideous few Christmas decorations, and every store in Budapest sold the same umbrella. That umbrella was a cheesy, small umbrella with a handle about this big, which we finally, in despair, bought. And we always called it the communist umbrella. It was absolutely useless, you know, but it was the only umbrella there was because nobody was allowed to exercise their creativity and make 16 new kinds of umbrellas. Except we saw a few very, very wealthy people seemingly carrying German umbrellas, as far as we could tell. But every other you know, person was hunkered in Budapest, hunkered on one of these stupid communist umbrellas, you know, just getting soaked by this cold rain because they, they weren't allowed. Now, in the natural world, we see this astonishing diversity. And we have this idea that somehow it's progress. But really, it's just diversity. It, it, it's, it's only progress if we have some idea of where we're going. And you see the fundamental delusion even within ourselves that more is indicative of more of something that we want, is also one of the confusions that has really infected our society. 
profoundly and is one of the reasons, divinely speaking, why um, we seemingly are going to have a lot less. You know, because the, the concept of more is better has just taken us down a road where we don't want to go. You know, to, to levels of, of immoral greed that have just are disintegrating us all left and right. But that's a whole other story. But what Swamiji is expressing here is he's ex- expressing the wisdom of the Vedas. This has always been the statement. And this is the wisdom of the Bible. In the beginning was the word and everything was, that was made was made from that word. Now, when you're just looking at the Scription Christians, I was going to call them Christian Christian Scriptures, uh, you don't have any context for that. That's the trouble with Christianity all by itself, is there's no context. When you see the Christian Scripture in the context of of older Scriptures and see the way St. John in the Bible especially continues the same story that's told by the Upanishads and the Vedas and the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita, we understand that the word is the the vibration of spirit, the the spirit that moved across the waters, and we understand this, and it's because it's explicitly explained there, which all of you have heard, many of you have heard, you know, that the, the power of the spirit manifests everything that is. And there is this infinite oneness which moves in this vibration which of sound and light. The Christian Bible takes it from two sides. I mean, the, the Old and New Testament take it from two sides, light or sound. But both of them are basically the manifested reality of spirit, which makes the diversity of the world that we see. But even the wonderful scientists keep tracing it back, and the farther they trace it back, the more they discover that there really is no actual diversity. There's this intense appearance of diversity. But what they keep finding at the center is sameness. And as I was saying earlier, Swamiji says, the scientists don't yet know how to make the leap you know, from energy to consciousness. But that's where it has to go, that all of this form is a manifestation of consciousness. And then there's a step even beyond that, that, that our consciousness, being conscious, is neither a random nor a purposeless event. It's, it's all going in a, a very profound and, and specific direction, which is into greater or greater awareness, and the more awareness we have, the more that awareness leads to bliss. And Swami presents to us this magnificent concept called Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss, which is a perfect synonym for the word God. Except the word God in English is a very confusing word because we don't have anything to attach it to. But ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss really defines, if we meditate on it, exactly what it is that we want. You know, we don't want to be obliterated. Even if we think sometimes it would be very restful to be obliterated, really, when anything threatens to snuff us out, we become very anxious about that. Because just deep within ourselves... We have a desire to, re- to remain aware, to not be lost. But it's not enough just to be ever-existing. We also have to have some awareness. But we don't want to have an awareness of misery, of suffering. What we really want to have an, have an awareness that we enjoy, ever-new joy, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. 
And so when people say, I want God, I seek God, or I have an experience of God, the word satchitananda, if we put that in there, that's what we're really trying to do. And if we look around at the entire, all of creation, every part of it, you see that in fact, you know, consciously or unconsciously, that's what everybody is moving toward. You know, especially when you reach the level of human awareness where there's a degree of refinement. But even, you know, dogs and cats. I was watching uh, this woman, I just was driving um, this morning or yesterday, and there was a young woman and she was running and she had on the leash this beautiful dog, you know, just one of those big dogs with beautiful long hair. Dog was just having such a good time running and its little, its big tail was going like this and the woman was, I mean, they were, they were a beautiful pair just going along together and I was just thinking, oh, that dog must be so happy when it sees its owner putting on its running shoes because they're going to go out and have this experience and, you know, dogs are just so uh, transparent in their enthusiasm. They're just, and you know, just, if you've seen them, <laughs> you know, they get so excited looking here, looking there, and every day it's the same thing. You know, dogs can be great teachers. Every day they're so enthusiastic. They're looking to expand their awareness, to have new experiences. They're not looking to be miserable, and they're not looking to stay the same. They're, they're dumb, you know, from the point of view of human consciousness, because they don't, they can't retain a, a lot, which is also talked about in here, but they still manifest that drive, you know. And human beings, when we analyze our own motivation, we always realize that we're, what we're seeking is a continuous experience of bliss. And whatever decisions we make, and some of them retrospectively, we, it's hard to imagine how we could be so blind. But it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's one of my favorite phrases. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I wouldn't have done it if it didn't. But as we have sufficient experiences, we begin to realize that some ideas are better than others, don't we? And what's really so fascinating, if you, if you actually look over your whole life and try to find a unifying thread, we realize even from childhood, progress in life is defined by an increasing awareness. Even little babies, I mean, what makes little babies um, what they are is because they're, they're not aware of very much. I mean, they may have an intuitive connection with certain realities. They may be, you may be able to say they're wise because they're more loving, they're wise because they're more trusting. But the truth is, there's just so much they're not aware of. I mean, they don't know how to eat. They don't know how to keep themselves clean. They don't understand their own nature. And as they grow up, what they do is they become more aware. They become more aware of many other realities than just the self-evident ones. And when we ourselves look back on the progress of our lives, we just see it was ever-expanding awareness. When I was young, I had this just driving desire to find a meaningful way of life. And that impulse was really with me from really as early as I can remember. My difficulties were that I wasn't, I didn't know, you know, what really gave life meaning. And then when I began to sense it, I didn't know how to find it. But, but I could see that as my growth is defined by an increasing state of awareness. And you might make a dumb decision and you might ris- misread a person's personality and get in a lot of trouble because of that. How could I be so unaware? That's what you'll actually say. And then we become more aware of things that we want to know. And so we say, I've learned a lot. 
because I've become more aware. I've become aware of my own nature. I've become aware of what motivates me. I've become aware of where happiness really comes from. So then we ask ourselves that question, is there any limit to how aware we can become? And we look, our, look around and see examples around us. And, you know, if, if we see individuals who are more aware than we are, you know, we ask ourselves, can I rise to that potential? In my own life, as most of you know, when I was 22 years old, I met Swami Kriyananda. And I was striving, this is 1969, I was striving very hard to expand my awareness, but I couldn't really figure out how to do it. But when I met him, just in the first instant, by pure intuition, I just sensed that he had a, a, a greatly expanded awareness, much more than I had. And just in that moment, I decided I, I wanted to have what he had. And I've spent the rest of my life really learning from him, you know, what that awareness is and how to attain it. Just so simple. You can, you can lay all kinds of things over that, but really that's all we're trying to do. You see, that's Satchitananda, ever-expanding, ever-conscious, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new, bliss, coming into that. Now, Swamiji explains how everything in creation is a manifestation of this consciousness, and it starts out much less aware. And the rocks, you know, the, uh, the plants especially plants, but even minerals and crystals. You know, there's a living force there. In Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, Master talks about the experiments of uh, uh, Dr. Bosch in India, how he demonstrated that even metals have consciousness. And he showed how they respond to chemicals, how they actually shrink away, you know, from poisonous substances just by magnifying Um, the elements and putting them in clear perspective, you can see that however dim the awareness, there's still that striving out toward what one perceives as positive and that shrinking back from what one perceives as negative. It's interesting that in Autobiography of a Yogi, which is such a seminal book, Master includes a whole chapter. One, he's showing, you know, the the advanced greatness potential of, of India, But he's also just giving us scientific evidence of the presence of consciousness even where we think it's not present. And then Bosch goes on and he does experiments with plants, which is more widely understood today. You know, plants like certain kinds of music. They grow in music. They respond to love. Um, Most plants don't like um, harsh music, but um, in The Secret Life of Plants, they tell the story about how most, most plants prefer harmonious classical music but radishes like jazz. <laughs> but literally, the radishes go out and embrace the speaker that plays jazz to them. But you know, a radish is a really peppy little creature, isn't it? And it's, it's peppery, it's fast-growing, you know? So it's just in tune with jazz. Isn't that just an amazing thought? Every time I eat a radish, I think about that. You know, it, just li- it likes that kind of energy. It, it, it moves with it. But you see, it has enough consciousness to be able to reach out. But... Swami is explaining to us here that what's missing in the, the mineral, the plant, and even the animal world, animals, of course, are more aware. You know, that puppy can run around and sniff things. It can be excited because its owner is putting on its shoes and it means we're going out for a run. Dogs and horses and monkeys, Yogananda said, are the most evolved creatures. I mean, if you ever see a herd of monkeys in the wild, you know the humanness of the face and the eyes. It's 
it's eerie is the only thing you can say because they're just little furry people with you know slightly limited potential but they have so much of a in their eyes this human consciousness though these we were in costa rica once in this group i think they were capuchin capuchin monkeys is that what they're called the ones with the little habits they're wearing little monastic habits <laughs> they had these little tiny faces and they were so i really felt they were fallen humans especially this particular group that the guide would make noise. We'd go to, we were in this boat and the guide would make certain kind of noises and the same herd would come and then they'd get on the boat. So it's like these wild monkeys were in constant contact with human beings, which not all wild monkeys are. And I just thought, this is like some band of dacoits or something, some group of bandits that were really, really bad humans. And so they got thrown back down to the animal level. But because they used to be human, they're just really much smarter the way they would do things, and the way monkeys will, you know, steal. There are monkeys in India that will steal your glasses, and then they'll train them for, trade them for bananas. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, they figured it out. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're smart creatures. Um, but the thing about animals is they lack the ego development that allows them to objectify and reflect on their own experience. I mean, on one level, that makes them seem more advanced because they don't have that ego differentiation. Um, P.G. Woodhouse wrote a very humorous book, a story called The Shy Man. And it's written from the dog's point of view. And it's all about this dog's owner, that the dog is the eye in the story, and about how shy this man is and how, you know, how stealthily he avoids being human company and all these different things. Turns out he's a thief and he's running from the police. <laughs> You know, this is all told in a funny way, but the dog just sees is what a, what a retiring, shy, humble, modest person this is because, in truth, the animal doesn't have the object, objectivity. But animals are, therefore, have certain characteristics that are in some way superior to human beings for reasons that Swamiji explains there, but they can't reflect. A dog can't say, and say, well, yes, you know, my condition really isn't as good as it could be because now the children are grown up. I don't have as many people to play with. But when I think about all those wild dogs in India and how hungry and alone they are, I can see that my position isn't really so bad, so I should really make the best of it and be cheerful. You know, they can't, they can't think like that. Or they can't think, you know, if I eat too much tuna fish, then I'm going to have a bloated stomach and I really ought not to do this. They just say, more, 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 more. They can't think like that. They can think to a certain point, but not beyond. But still, there's this um, uh, implanted desire of consciousness to want to expand to infinity. So everything that's conscious is reaching out toward greater awareness. So animals, driven by that implanted instinct, just keep seeking to explore. Um, Swamiji uses an example, particular example of monkeys or some, something in the jungle, about how even if that they, they eat many different kinds of fruit, if they have the opportunity to do, and they'll eat a little bit of each, each one, and you could give it lots of explanations, but the explanations that the scientists who've studied have come to is simply, they enjoy the variety of taste. It's just like, I've tasted that, now let me taste this. I've tasted that, let me taste that, this. Just like humans are. You know, there's just this desire to expand our awareness and know more that we know. Now, 
Um, now I think I'll take a little pause. Let me take a little break here, and then we'll talk about how all that all fits together with material success. How's that for a plan? Let's take, um, you know, less than 10 minutes. Um, so we were talking about how animals evolve and the difference between how animals evolve and people evolve. These are very, very important to get important points to get really clear in our understanding, not only because of the personal implications, but these are the questions that people are asking all the time. And and I don't I don't mean to be dogmatic. I don't mean to sort of speak of dogmatism and then just turn around and appear to be the same one. Um, many years ago, because I'm stating this is the way things are, some people don't like it when you're too emphatic, but... Um, when I, was, uh, er, when I early on came across the concept of reincarnation, and that was before I joined this ashram and was really dedicated to this path, it just seemed like a really interesting idea to me, and intuitively it made a lot of sense. And I just started looking at life as if this were true. You know, if there was such a thing in reincarnation, how would it explain this? How would it explain that? And it just simply, my own intuitive observation of life Reincarnation helped just make that which seemed kind of random and unreasonable very harmonious. And then I would read the words of the masters and the scriptures combined with my own reflection. I was amused once many years ago when, and then during the 70s when I lived in our community of Ananda Village, which is up in the mountains of the foothills. And that community has two locations. And one is right on the main road and the other is six miles up this very rugged dirt road. And originally our guest facility was way out in the the boonie part. And I was there and I was teaching a class and the class happened to be on reincarnation. And some man managed to hitchhike all the way back to there, got rides with our neighbors and showed up in the middle of the class. He was just bumming around looking at communities and he ended up in my class on reincarnation. He was very polite. And then afterwards I gave him a ride back down the road. And when we were right in the middle of the the most uninhabited portion, it was sort of like he looked around and realized that nobody was listening and he turned to me and he said, you really believe that stuff? <laughs> just like that, like it's just you, me, and the four walls, you can speak frankly. <laughs> you know? And I said, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> and I tried to give him some idea why, but, uh, but I also said to him, you know, don't take anybody's word for it. Just see if this makes sense out of the nonsensical. And this whole way of thinking about animals as, because you can see that within the animal world there's this gradually evolving consciousness and some are much more aware than others. If you look at everything in creation you see that everything is going from less to more awareness. That is really the direction. Not variety but degree of awareness. Now Swamiji makes, he doesn't put it in here but in another place he makes the most fascinating statement. He says we, our consciousness manifests whatever form um, allows us to express the limits of our consciousness. So if you think of something like a praying mantis, you realize a praying mantis has a little more opportunity for experience than, for example, an earthworm. You know, So a praying mantis, if an earthworm is a really good earthworm and sort of experiences everything an earthworm can experience, and then there's still this push to greater awareness, it needs to manifest a more sophisticated form. And it keeps moving through more and more sophisticated. And sophisticated forms are those which allow a greater and greater level of experience. I mean, that group of monkeys in the Costa Rican jungle 
not only were monkeys, you know, much more expansive than earthworms, but that particular group of monkeys was having even a more interesting experience because they kept getting on and off the tourist boats, which not all the monkeys got to do. But we live in a body, and this is where Swamiji was talking when we were just looking at all the guests in the hotel. You know, some people manifest bodies that allow very limited opportunity for experience because they have no talent or they have no awareness or they're born in very limited circumstances. But the impulse of Satchitananda to realize itself just keeps pushing us. And we either move forward through fulfillment or suffering, but we keep pushing forward. And when we've exhausted the potential of whatever form we're in, whether it's this specific human body or an animal form, that's the point at which we get to manifest another. Because the individual consciousness, and that's another aspect of creation, everything in creation, Yogananda says, is dowered with individuality. And that individuality is always seeking self-awareness. So each one of us and every animal in creation, in fact, Master said, all the way back to the level of gemstones, is where the, the jiva begins. The jiva is that spark of individuality. And it keeps pushing. Like that. It's a fascinating way to think about it. And, you know, we, we, we keep looking. And so the animals, as I was starting to say earlier, because they don't have the objective self-awareness to either control or evaluate the consequences of their own action beyond a certain point. I mean, you know, animals can be trained. If they get an electric shock here and they get food here, they'll shift over. And we do all these experiments to prove that they can, their awareness can develop to that level of cause and effect. And sometimes, you know, they can do remarkable things. They, one of these uh, experiences where is it chimpanzees that are so capable of learning language and this, uh, there was a, a story a woman, to, a woman told about a chimp that she was in, in relationship to for years, doing one of these experiences, trying to develop, you know, the intelligence of that animal. And the woman herself had become pregnant and then miscarried. Or in some way her baby died. And when she came to the chimpanzee, having lost her own child, the chimpanzee made the sign of tears and then the sign of a baby. I mean, amazing, isn't it? You also think that that chimp was some human being who'd gone back, you know. But still, that it, there would be just that much simpatico between the two creatures. Pardon me? Pushing real hard to get out. Now, the chimpanzee, it can't, you know, it can't form words. So it can't say what it wants to say. I mean, think how sophisticated it is to be able to have the capacity to conceive and to form words. You see how much that opens up? And then you can come to me from China and tell me about China, and I can listen to China. You know, but you can sit with your dog and tell your dog about China, and the dog may have a sense that you had a great time, you know, but it's very hard for it, them to objectify China, right? Because there's just simply a limit to its awareness. Now, because animals don't, can't objectify their awareness and can't reason out their own actions, their evolution, the way Master describes it, is automatic. You know, there's just this force that's pushing. And so the animals keep seeking to expand their experience until, they, the, until the individuals reach the limit of an animal body. 
At which point their consciousness is expanded to the point where, how can you say it? They're capable of manifesting a human body. They're capable of inhabiting a human body. I mean, what the mechanics of it are a little bit beyond me. But this is what Swami is saying. Either the form is manifested by consciousness and it's all consciousness, or else it's a dog because it's in a dog's body. It's a human because it's in a human body. And if it were in a dog's body, it would be a dog again. That's really hard to imagine, you know, with the level of refinement that we have, just sort of, you know, frolicking around in a dog's body. It would be uh, a little bit confining, don't you think so? I don't know if any of you have ever read Kinship with All Life, which is a marvelous book by a man named, I think his last name is Boone. And he he was uh, the custodian of a dog named Strongheart, who was a German shepherd who was a Hollywood star. But Strongheart was such a profoundly evolved dog, you know, that either he was again a fallen human or an about to be human or a human that decided to be a dog, you know, out of conscious determination to set an example of the potential of dogness. You don't really know. But you know, it was an, it's an amazing story of how far an animal's consciousness can go. But still, it could never speak, you know, it, it could never objectify and then control its own behavior. So we evolve naturally until we get to the human level. And then the good news and the bad news is that because we can suddenly think about our own behavior and make decisions affecting our behavior way beyond what animals can do, we develop to a large extent free will as to whether or not from this point forward we will continue to expand our awareness towards Satchitananda or not or how long it's going to take us. And that's where all of us are, basically. We have these human bodies, and the, the difference between an animal and a human body and what makes the human body more evolved than an animal is not merely the egoic self-awareness involved, but the sophistication of the nervous system within us. And uh, Master speaks of this, that you know, in the human being, the energy is really centered, you know, here in the, in the frontal lobe. And we have a spine, but we don't have tails because the energy with us is upward. And you see a dog, and, you know, it's a little, for the most part, the forehead slants back a little bit. And the, the, the energy of the dog is in its tail, isn't it? That's where all of the in energy and enthusiasm and the personality comes out. It's at the bottom of the spine. And there are human beings that have most of their energy down at the bottom of their spines, but you don't really think of such a person as highly evolved. The more evolved individuals, their energy comes from the heart and from the brain a lot more. If it's only operating from the lower half of the body, from food and sex and, you know, just fundamental bodily functions, it's, it's still half in the animal world, isn't it? But the human nervous system in the human brain has the capacity to be infinitely aware. And this is the great answer to the medical uh, conundrum where they speak of how little of our brain capacity we actually use. And we do use very little, the average person, because the machine can do a lot more than most people's consciousness within it. You know, just like there are dogs and there are dogs. I mentioned in India, there are all these stray dogs. There is this thing called 
the Indian dog, all dogs in India, many, many dogs in India, all look alike. There's just this generic wild dog. It's kind of skinny, it's kind of homely, and most of the time he's pretty stupid. You know, one of our friends in a misguided sense of compassion, really, you know, enamored by one of the little puppies, like adopted the little puppy and raised it and so on, and the dog was just untrainable because he was just so dumb. You know, he just wasn't a very highly evolved dog where you could take a more highly evolved dog and teach it all sorts of things. This dog flunked obedience school three times. It just could never learn anything. Finally, you know, somebody sent it out and it became a watchdog somewhere, and that was a good job for it. But it just couldn't be a house dog because it couldn't learn anything. Because even the capacity of a dog's brain, it hadn't expanded into the full capacity of that brain. And there are different breeds of dogs that are smarter. But the human body inherently, the way it's made, the energy can rise all the way from the base of the spine to the spiritual eye, and from the spiritual eye you can live in a human body and simultaneously have infinite awareness. But how quickly or how slowly we move to that is now no longer automatic. And so the free ride is over. Now we begin to be able to say, oh, this is pleasurable, and that's not pleasurable, and this is pleasurable, and that's not pleasurable. And the dice are loaded against us, as Swamiji explains in here just really wonderfully well, because our senses are turned outward. And we, we project upon the world around us the belief that what I'm experiencing inside is a cause-and-effect relationship with what's happening outside. Uh, we were talking recently Master wrote somewhere, he said, what happens in human life is that we see um, sequential events, but we don't understand what's causing them. And in fact, even worse, we misread what's causing them. You know, something happens, I feel sad, what you have done has made me sad. Sometimes in marriage counseling, I'm faced with that issue, a particular couple whose marriage lasted an extremely brief period of time. Both of them, were spectacularly unaware of their own inner dynamic. And both of them had deeply planted within them uh, enormous unresolved issues about thousands of things. And when they came together in the hope of the relationship making them happy, countless things that their partner did triggered within them something that made them feel unhappy. And because they were standing in front of the partner, the partner did an action, I felt bad, the thought was that you made me unhappy. Because the cause and effect relationship between what happened and how they felt was completely undeveloped. They didn't, as I put it, trying to help them, you have no idea where your unhappiness is coming from. And so you keep thinking it's coming from there. But basically, you know, a person could whistle Yankee Doodle Dandy and you could also feel unhappy and you might tie all this together, but there's no cause and effect relationship. So we come into this world thinking that consciousness is created by form because, golly, look at these forms, you know? And all of our input, so much of our input is through our senses, that these things attract us. We feel attracted to them and we don't understand for many incarnations, that we are Satchitananda. We are ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And we take, the way Swami puts it so sweetly in here, 
We take our own inner bliss, we project it onto something, and then we imagine that that's causing it. And then we spend our whole life pursuing it, don't we? Many, many lifetimes. Now, it's not even as simple as that, because there's this counterforce. And you can certainly ask the question, why? It's perfectly fair to answer the question, why? But, um, well, Vivekananda's marvelous cop-out to that question was, the state of consciousness that asks the question is not capable of understanding the answer, (laughs) which I thought was a very good way to get a to avoid answering Swami Kriyananda's answer when one of my friends just asked her asked him why he said to her what difference would it make you're miserable there's a way out of your misery (laughs) he said follow that way out and he said and when you begin to escape from the um, confining chains of your ego identity then you'll understand and you won't even ask the question that's Vivekananda's answer that it when, when you finally penetrate and see through the confusion of our own mind, you don't really feel that anything's been done to you. You just feel like I was mistaken and now I'm not. It's sort of like imagining um, that, um, well, some, I was on, on a bus once. I mean, these things happen. Swami described this being on a bus and a fly was just going across the window And just out of the corner of his eye, he thought the fly was as big as the building next door, and there was just this huge sense of, you know, sort of, what is happening? And then he just turned and saw it was just a small fly, and it was just a delusion. But he didn't have this great sense of, why did that delusion happen? Why was I frightened by a mere fly? It was like, oh, I thought one thing was happening, and now another is happening. So we think that all these things are being done to us, But as we gradually expand our awareness, we begin to understand that the entire experience, the entire growth of life is from lesser to greater awareness. And what we become greater and greater aware of is our inner reality and how that inner reality is the outer reality, that it is consciousness, not form. Now, the whole point of this, and I'm going to stop in just a moment and see if there's any questions before we end, is that if we're trying to manifest in this world anything, you know, material success is what we're working with, it helps to know how the world works and why, doesn't it? You know, the, the more deeply we can understand what the dynamic is between consciousness and form, the more we can use consciousness to influence form. If everything is consciousness and form is created by consciousness, you, you see, at least in potential, what a position of infinite power that gives you. And that's precisely 100% what our destiny is. Now, any questions or thoughts or comments? If you have any, we like you to speak into the microphone so it goes onto the tape. Sahadev in the back would like that. Otherwise... The people who listen on the internet just hear this long silence and they write me angry emails. Okay. <laughs> At the very beginning, um, you said something. I tried to hang on to it, but it kind of slipped away from me. It was basically you were saying uh, there was a connection between superconsciousness and success. Right. Could I didn't re- get there. Could you? Pardon? I didn't get there. That's next week. Okay. No, no, but you, but you, but I, you. I introduced it. Uh huh. Yeah. Could you just say it again, just even in a sentence or two? Well. All success is based on superconscious attunement. I, the fact is, I, I, I haven't yet explained it. That's the second half of this lesson. 
Because superconscious is the source. Conscious and subconscious merely reflect, um, are not creative in themselves. The power of creation comes through the superconscious. So if we're, going to be, if we're going to be more than just a reflection of our circumstances, we have to know how to tune in superconsciously. And that brings us back to the balance of meditation and work. Because meditation is one of the keys to being able to still ourselves inwardly and sense the superconscious. The subconscious is just a repository of everything that's been. People who work uncreatively or just repeat what's been done. I mean, they may make money, they may do certain things. But their success is repetition, not original. The conscious mind is essentially the battleground between the upward-moving inspiration and the power of what's already been. And the superconscious is where the individuality expands to infinity, and it's through that superconscious attunement that real power comes. And next week, that's basically you know where this is going, because we're talking here about how to expand our awareness, so once I've, I've established the importance of that, then how do we really do that? We do that by escaping from subconscious habit, by developing discipline on the conscious level to become receptive to the superconscious. And that is the key. Superconscious living is the key to success in everything that we do. People, anybody who's good at anything, consciously or unconsciously, is being inspired by the superconscious. I mean, where does Steve Jobs get his ideas? You know? I mean, he just moves through the world and he just thinks of things that other people just don't think of because he's, he's tapped in. I don't know whether he's a spiritual man or meditates or anything. I don't know the man, but he's just so original. He, can, he just knows things. Where do great musicians get their ideas? And all of us have had experiences of that. I'm sure you have. Where even in just small things, oh, I could make a soup by putting these things together. Oh, and it just comes out perfectly. And you, you feel it as an inspiration descending. You know, you haven't just laboriously dragged it out of all the cookbooks. You were just standing there and all of a sudden it was yours. You know, that's how superconsciousness works. And it, it's, it's uh, mundane and it's um, divine, celestial. It's both. It, and it in, infuses every level of our lives. And the art of living superconsciously, in tune with superconsciousness, is the entire key to spiritual progress, material success. And Swami writes in here, and we'll talk about it, he said, regular meditation alone does not necessarily ensure this, but meditation will... I mean, it's not the meditation that creates a success, it's that the meditation makes you receptive to the superconscious influence. And then the superconscious influence is really what transforms you. That, in other words... People call that the grace of God, which is another way of saying it. There's lots of pieces to that, but I'll, I'll deal with it next week. Fair enough? It's really important. And in fact, in a completely other context, Swami was talking about, you know, even regular deep meditation without a corresponding effort to live superconsciously will not necessarily give you the spiritual progress you're seeking. So, you know, just understanding that what that means. And even very little meditation with a corresponding effort to live superconsciously may in fact give you more success, both spiritually and materially, than just meditation without that. It's very interesting, tons of fun. All of this, you know, 
gives us something really meaty to do and very accessible. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? Yes, Lee? Could you repeat that very nifty observation about consciousness expressing through limitations its nature? Um, The way the evolution of form takes place through the power of reincarnation is that our consciousness, our our jiva, manifests a form that allows us to express the limits of our present awareness. And when we have exhausted the potential of that form, then we discard that form and we get another one. And whether we evolve then and get to a higher species depends on whether we've just exhausted that one or we've exhausted the whole species. And that's why Master said, even that's why human beings die, he said, sometimes people become old and become psychological antiques and they're simply incapable of continuing to expand their awareness. So Master just, God just pulls them out of their bodies and lets them start over. They haven't exhausted the potential of the human form but they've exhausted the potential of that human form. One of my friends, whose mother was from South Dakota or North Dakota, an old farm woman, she just lived on and on and on, long after her daughter thought it was time for her to pass on. And you know, and she, by the time she died, she was just this little desiccated woman. And the daughter said, my mother was so frugal, she was not going to give up that body until she'd squoze every single bit out of it. And that's just how she was. You know, it can still breathe, it can still eat, I'm not going to give it up yet. just wasn't finished. And sometimes you see that. People, there's still some potential in there for growth, so they just stay in the body. Oftentimes we don't know why. You think, well, it's time to cast it off, but they haven't exhausted the potential of it. They could be demented, they could be ill, but there's some consciousness potential, so they're not going to go until it's over. Maybe the consciousness potential is just to let go, you know, but if they don't know it, they don't know it. Okay? All right. Thank you all very much. We'll see you next week.